All right. Um, just to give you guys a little bit of a heads up, um, Mark is supposed to be teaching this morning, but Mark has fallen ill. So I'm coming in as pinch hitter. Um, but uh, I was thinking of taking over his chapter, and unfortunately, the chapters, as you guys have learned, are so chocked full and so packed that to try and get that ready in one evening was virtually impossible. So um, I decided, well, Bart actually suggested to me, um, we've been going through First Timothy in our resolved group, and so I'm sorry for all of you who are in resolved, but we're basically going to kind of go over what we talked about this past week, and there's a whole lot of you. So um, it's interesting because with resolved, we're very discussion-oriented. Um, we, we leave it open for people to ask questions and stuff, and we kind of let it take its course over time. But unfortunately, we don't have that luxury as much here because, first of all, I don't have all the time in the world. <laughs> I'm, I'm stuck to 50 minutes, um, whereas there we've gone for, what, an hour and a half at times in discussion and, and stuff. So, And then we eat, so that's always fun too. So thanks to Jen, she's always making nice little treats for us. Um, but I am excited. I, I thought we had a great discussion this past week in studying First Timothy uh, chapter 5. So that's where we're going to go this evening or this morning. I'm so used to saying this evening when I'm working in First Timothy. <laughs> and uh, if you do have questions that come along, hopefully um, we might have a little bit of discussion. But I, like I said, I I'm kind of going off of. Um, very short notice, but stuff that is is prepared, so don't be afraid that this is thrown together. This had some thought put into it, <laughs> just not for this setting. So let's pray, and then I'll, I'll take us into our passage this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this great and glorious day you've given us. Even just the, the sight of the Christmas tree and the lights remind us of your goodness to us and the fact that God became man and he is and 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 through Jesus Christ has bought us with his own blood through his life and his death and his resurrection and we thank you for that and father we thank you that you didn't leave it simply at the earthly ministry of Christ 2000 years ago but you sent your holy spirit <clears throat> to build the church and upon the rock that that you established with the gospel through Jesus Christ you you have been growing your church each and every day and we thank you for that we thank you that we stand in the line of, of the long line of of godly men and women who have gone before us and as we look at first timothy this morning we we remember the fact that you have set order within the church to protect the church. And while nations and kingdoms and, and empires have come and gone, not one of them remains today, but yet the church still stands. We pray that we will be guardians of your truth and that through your church, you will continue to be glorified until the day you return to take her home. We pray for our time together. May it be a wonderful, profitable time as time in your word always is. 
And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be, pleasant, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my God, my rock, and my redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So as I said, our passage is 1 Timothy 5, and it's starting in verse 17 through 25. Um, is, is the section that we dealt with this past week in our, in our group. Now, just to give you a bit of a heads up, I could, I'm almost going to I want to put some of our Resolve people on the spot. There is a structure to 1 Timothy, and they know where I'm going with this already. It is called a what? A chiastic structure. All right, see? And if you've been in BTI, you know what that is. Basically, you have a, it's, the beginning of the book starts with talking about false teachers, and then the second point goes into talking about church orderliness, and then the third one talks about leadership, and then you have the fourth point um, is, is the purpose of the church. And then what happens in a chiastic structure, if you've been to BTI, you know this, it then kind of backtracks, and it does a reverse order of that. So you start, you have the purpose here, then you go back to leadership, then you go back to church orderliness, and you end off with talking about false teachers again. And all of this is to point to that central focus, which is the purpose, which we find actually back in First Timothy chapter 3. And I think to, to get the whole sense of where... Timothy, where Paul is writing to Timothy, we need to understand 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 14, and all the way through chapter 4, verse 5. It says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressingly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So that is the whole theme. That, that, those two paragraphs, or however they're structured in your Bible, are the whole purpose of First Timothy. You have the gospel in there and the guarding of the gospel uh, within that. Um, now the section we're in today is that we've got false teachers, church orderliness, leadership, and then the purpose, and then we're, we're on the backtrack now where you have leadership, and then you have church orderliness again in this section that we're, that we're in today. Um, and we start in verse 17 of chapter 5. And we're talking about leaders here. There is a section we've gone through leadership, but now we're going to talk about church orderliness in the context of how do we as congregation members look to our leaders and how do we understand our leaders and it's a little bit different uh, perspective than just love them and 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 follow after them this is actually hold them accountable this whole section um, verse 17 
says, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. I charge you, in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. Um, we've, I've been using in my study uh, a commentary from... Uh, primary as my one of my primary resources by a man named Kent Hughes who wrote um, now disciplines of God, disciplines of a godly man thank you um, which many of the men in our church have read um, Pastor Hughes was one of my pastors when I was in college uh, he was I, I was doing my internship at College Church of Wheaton uh, just outside of Chicago, and he was the pastor of the church. So I have this special affinity for this man and, uh, and his insight into things. Um, I love our own pastor more, though. I think he's got better insights. But he hasn't written a commentary on First Timothy yet, so <laughs> it's coming. All right. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. You heard it here first. <laughs> um, but he, he talks about... Um, at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, the, um, there's a cemetery nearby that all the presidents of Southern Seminary have been buried in. And, and they, they all have their different tombstones, and there are some great men in there, uh, among them men like James Pettigrew Boyce, E.Y. Mullins, um, John Brodus, A.T. Robertson, and one day Dr. Al Mohler will also be buried in that same cemetery. Um, but Kent Hughes talks about the fact that, that one day he was walking through this cemetery with Dr. Moeller, looking at the imposing um, granite uh, of, of Brodus's tombstone. And beneath its shadow is A.T. Robertson. Now, more people are familiar with A.T. Robertson, but yet at the same time, he has a flat tombstone next to a gigantic granite uh, precipice, I guess. And Dr. Moeller explained it to him this way. Robertson wanted to be buried in Broadus' shadow. Though A.T. Robertson was himself the towering genius of Southern Seminary, but... The juxtaposition of tombstones is crucial in understanding what leadership is. A careful examination of any Christian institution in any church will bear this out, regardless of its size or its prominence. And the, the Apostle Paul, is there a tissue up here in my note? <laughs> There's here. Paul very much understood this in his own time. Um, so he wrote this letter to Timothy. 
both the scarcity and the fragility of church leadership dogged Paul's ministry and his missionary heart that he knew that, as the old saying goes, as the leadership goes, so goes the church. And everything stems from that in the church. So Paul starts with this instruction in chapter 5, verse 17. And he says, this is always the hard part for pastors to preach. (laughs) Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now we can go into the the term elders, the Greek and everything here, but it's really meant to, it's the equivalent of the word pastor here. It's it's still the same thing. This is the same designation that is used in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. It's also used in Titus and in the book of Acts. The title elder, actually, sorry. (laughs) This could be fun. This just came on as of like two minutes ago. Um, The term elder originally came from the Jewish synagogue, uh, where it was meant to to refer to the one who supervised the synagogue. So this has a long-standing thing. This is those who rule over. These are the pastors. These are the elders. Um, These elder pastors, Paul says, were to be given double honor. Um, As a pastor... Myself and Steve and I both agree that this just means double financial gain. Um, <laughs> no, no, that that's not what it means. Although it does play itself out in the remuneration of those who lead. Um, it's it's tempting to to just say it's double pay, but it really has more to to the ancient interpretation. Even Chrysostom said that this referred to reverence. Um, and support. This was a twofold honor, but by both respect and remuneration. You're, it's, so that's twofold. It not, doesn't mean just double honor. So when Paul talks about remuneration, Paul quotes two unquestionable authorities um, here. Who is the first one that he talks about? I'm going to ask, like Resolve, I'm going to throw this out there. And since they only heard this on Thursday, they better remember. (laughs) Um, Who are the two authorities that Paul refers to at this point? No, uh, when he talks, do not admit a charge. For the scripture says, when he's talking about the scripture, whose authority is he going off of? Who wrote those scriptures? Moses. So Paul is referring back to the law of Moses right now. He's going from this, this incredible authority that, that every Jewish man understands, every Jew understands that the law of Moses, whoa, don't step on that. That is an important thing. But then he goes from that authority to what? And if you have a red-letter Bible, a lot of them show who the second authority is. Christ himself. Because Christ says the laborer deserves his wages. So Paul goes from the lesser to the greater. Even though Moses is huge, he goes to an even greater source uh, when, when he talks about it. The, um, you shall, and, and what, is, 
what does it say? For, the, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. This quotation is used um, from the lesser to the greater, which he spelled out in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now let me read 1 Corinthians 9 for you. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for an oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? So Paul did not claim this for himself, but nevertheless commended that, that he get paid. And that payment is the norm for the established church of those who teach and preach. In case this wasn't sufficiently convincing from the law of Moses, the second quotation directly comes from Jesus, that the laborer deserves his wages. Um, This is word for word from Luke chapter 10, verse 7, or Matthew 10, 10. It's, It's really neat to find that Paul is introducing both Old Testament and New Testament as his support. Um, He's, he's, and he's also... If you look at it, he's saying the scripture says he is validating the authority of the gospels by saying the scriptures say. He says those are scripture. Those are the scriptures. So we have it from Paul via Moses and Jesus that the churches are to honor their pastors. Um, and, and that is a wonderful thing. So what is an honoring Stipend, a fair wage. As a rule of thumb, pastors ought to just be paid essentially with their congregation of the same age and, and education level and experience and responsibilities. Um, Joel Osteen is not the right example um, for that. Um, you need to be living within the means of your congregation, and your pastor should not have to live. This is really hard on, on <laughs> to say as a pastor. Should not have to live below you. He's, re- he's worthy of double honor. And I'll say this. We feel that here. We are, we are treated with, with, with that honor. And, and, and thankfully, um, I say this. I can say this comfortably because I don't feel like I have to step on toes to say that. So... Um, but the double honor is remuneration, but it's also respect. The other side of that double honor is that Paul talks about is respect them. Respect your, your elders, your, pre, your teachers, your preachers. What is this respect? There is an intrinsic respect for the pastoral position, but it is established and authenticated by their work. And it is work. The word here is labor. It's backbreaking. Those who labor in preaching and in teaching. It's literally who toil and work hard. Um, sloth, slothfulness, 
and laziness has no place in the ministry. So now we got through those first two verses, which are the fun ones. Um, but now we move into this area that's, that's questionable, and it's hard for Timothy to grasp in verses 19 through 21, this disciplining of church leaders. And you never want to have to be in that position of of disciplining church leaders. But there were leaders in Ephesus who were worthy of twofold honor because they did their jobs with great integrity and with great work. But sadly, there were others who weren't. They failed. And so Paul addresses this matter of disciplining such leaders. But what does he say? Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, Rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Disciplining church leaders requires three things. Caution, courage, and fairness. Those are absolutely necessary. When, when, it's, when we're talking about caution, Paul begins with this great cautionary note. And we talked extensively on Thursday night about this cautionary note. He says, do not, what? Admit a charge against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Now this is where I'm going to make a rare statement I prefer the NIV and how it translates this. The NIV says, do not entertain an accusation. The NASB says, do not receive an accusation. That is the spirit of what's going on. Don't you be the one who listens to one voice and makes a judgment call on your leadership. Um, Why does Paul say this? Because a pastor can tick a lot of people off really easily with things he says. From the pulpit, in a counseling situation, hard things need to be said to somebody. Now let's say somebody gets some advice or, or some counsel in a counseling session between him and the pastor and he does not like it. There's this, he can go and start spreading rumors all he wants. And he can start doing that. Is it founded? No. It's one accusation. But you have the responsibility to not accept, don't even entertain it if it's only coming from one person. Don't do that. Trust your pastor. If he has proven himself, if he has labored, as Paul has talked about earlier, if he has put in the toil and effort, he's he's worthy of that twofold honor and that involves respect and trust if you don't maintain character as a pastor you can lose everything next to your life in Christ your character is your most valuable possession in ministry also why do you need to guard the 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 leader you as a congregation member because church leaders are highly visible and are tragically vulnerable to the adverse actions of the disorderly, um, to those who have ill will, who, who want to see someone come down. To, to Pastors can receive a lot of gossip in their name. 
And that's what it is. It's gossip. And it's sin. The human tendency is to believe the worst even in the church of people. Um, John Calvin, who was no stranger to adversity in his ministry, said this. He said, As soon as any charge is made against a minister of the word, it is believed as surely and as firmly as it has already been proved. This happens not only because a higher standard of integrity is required of him, but because Satan makes most people, in fact nearly everyone, overcredulous so that without investigation they eagerly condemn their pastors whose good name they ought to be defending. Now, Calvin might have gone a little overboard. He might have been burned pretty hard. But I think the sentiment is, is there. I think many have experienced that. Um, Kent Hughes writes in his commentary a personal story. He says this, When I was first in ministry, a woman who had recently spent some time in a state mental hospital began attending my college group. She looked deranged. Her hair was disheveled, her eyes disengaged, and the poor woman was in ill health. Other than a group greeting, I never had a personal conversation with her. But she began to stalk our home, driving slowly by it at all hours, and she began to tell others that Pastor Hughes is going to leave his wife and marry me. Worse, some people actually believed her. How insulting. How wicked. How sub-Christian to entertain, much less give credence to such slander. I was shocked that anyone could entertain such a thought about me. The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the speech of the upright rescues them, says Proverbs 12.6. So what's the remedy? What's the remedy? Give your leaders the same protection that, well, that you would want and that everybody else has. Never listen to gossip or even to a serious accusation with the caveat if it only comes from one person. All charges must be substantiated by two or three. And two or three, I, w- I would add, reasonable people, if it's to be considered. All charges must be substantiated by two or three reasonable, responsible people. How much grief could be avoided in the church? It requires caution. The discipline of leaders also requires courage. Though we must be cautious in accusing, if a charge is substantiated, we have to have courage to rebuke. As far as those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. This could sound cold and unloving, but it is to be done for the sake of the church, for the sanctity and the protection of the church. Why? Paul says here, he gives this reason so that anyone else who tries to do that exact same thing, what? They stand in fear. They tremble in their boots at the thought that that could happen to them. I tell you, that is a great accountability. When you watch another pastor fall in ministry or or, or sin in some way, it strikes fear personally into my own heart going, if, if he can fall into sin that disqualifies him, Lord, protect me that I won't do that myself. That's why these men need to be called out publicly. They are, 
they, these men have a, a highly visible and public platform and their sin affects many and it needs to be dealt with and it takes courage it takes courage to go after the the big guy sometimes the leaders who sin with impunity and then move on to other churches wreak the same havoc And unfortunately, we have seen that even in the last two years happen in two major situations. Um, Mark Driscoll, as many of you are aware, was thrown out of his church in a big public scandal of of fraud and and of of abuse and, and just a lot of bad things happening in that church. A few months later, he had moved to Arizona and started a new church. Um, Tulian Chevekian in, at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church himself was was caught in an adulterous relationship a, year, a little over a year ago. Actually, I don't even know if it was a year ago. And uh, and last weekend married another woman after his wife divorced him, and yet he is still pursuing ministry. These men, it takes courage to call them out of their sin. And yet, sometimes they go and they do it to other churches over and over again because other churches have not heeded the warnings of Scripture, which we will also get to. But it requires caution to go there, but it requires courage to do it, but it also requires fairness. Fairness has to be exercised. Um, Discipline always has to be an issue. There has to be an issue of fairness. Verse 21 is closely joined with verse 19 and 20. And the NIV beginning begins a new paragraph here and says it's a mystery, as Gordon Fee says. And its, it's connection is urgent. It says, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing out of partiality or favoritism. Paul's force and passion here must be because there's been a scandalous exercise of favoritism shown in reference to some sinning church leaders. Some of these guys get shown favoritism. It's kind of the, in, in, in Ephesus, there was the good old boys network and they were protecting each other. Um, some were being showed favoritism. Even guilty leaders had gotten away with well, gotten away with murder, so to say. So this is a weighty matter. Why? Because it says it's in front of God, Christ Jesus, and the elect angels. And they're all called as witnesses to this event. Do you want to mess with those three sets of people? No. Timothy and his leaders are called to exercise fair, even-handed, Discipline in sight of everyone and in sight of the very ones who will one day judge them. In, f- in the sight of God, Christ Jesus, and elect angels. So when you bring a charge against somebody, you have to do it in fairness because you too will. This is a judge not lest you be judged, but also understand that means you will be judged. <laughs> and those are the men. In, and in says, and indeed, the man who is not shaken, or Calvin said this, sorry, I, I skipped in my notes here. 
John Calvin again emphasized the point. He says, And indeed the man who is not shaken out of his carelessness and laziness by the thought that the government of the church is conducted under the eye of God and his angels must be worse than stupid. Calvin had a way with words, did he not? To think that you're going to get away with it when God and, and, and Christ Jesus and the elect angels are watching you? You're worse than stupid. What does that say about us when we lose our nerve and defer to a leader's prominence and his reputation? Not only are we worse than stupid, we're pretty much hard-hardened. And then Paul runs into this next section, the, the last section here of select. So how do you avoid all of this? How do you avoid even getting your, putting your toe into the necessity of having to do all of this disgusting, horrible things that, that tear apart at the church? He says in verse 22 through 25, be careful in selecting church leaders. Be careful. The, the task of disciplining church leaders calls for upfront and, and, and great care and wisdom from godly men in that initial selection. Paul advises, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands nor take part in the sin of others. Earlier in chapter 3, verse 6, Paul insisted that church leaders must not be recent converts for that very reason. Here he commands careful screening. Indifference leaves leaders very exposed, very culpable, and partners in the sin of their appointees that they appoint when they fall short. They should have seen it coming. Leaders are, are held to that responsibility of... <laughs> You put them in place. You are partially responsible for this problem. So exercise extreme caution. This is why at Grace Bible Church, we grill our elders. And, I mean, it took Bart, what, like a year to become an elder? Like, it was a long time. Our deacons go through the same process. It is a vetting process that is worse than a presidential campaign. Um, it is... And, and I think it's valuable. It is important. It is necessary because the church needs to be protected. As I said earlier, so goes the leadership, so goes the church. So you want the best of the best in place. And I'm thankful that we as a church have those steps in process to, to make sure that, that as far as humanly possible, we protect the church from the people in the church because it's full of sinners and every one of us is a sinner. I can tell you, just the fact that I'm blowing my nose shows that I'm not a perfect person and that I'm a sinner. <laughs> now, at this point, Paul takes this little thing that seems like a departure and you kind of go, why would he throw this in here at this point? He says, stop drinking only water and use only a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. What? Huh? Where did this come from? We're talking about church leadership and discipline, and then he's throwing, you're sick, so go drink some wine? 
Where does this come from? This is not Paul kind of having a rabbit trail moment for a second. Paul puts this here very intentionally. When uh, there's been a lot of debate over this. In fact, James Moffat, when he penned his translation of the Bible, he left this verse out because he didn't think it was part of Paul's original um, manuscript since it seemed so out of place. And it does. It seems out of place. But it is so relevant to what is going on in the Ephesian church. And when we studied earlier um, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 4 in Resolved, we came across why this verse became important. There was rampant legalism going on with an and asceticism going on within the church in Ephesus. Meaning, follow these rules. Let's if you hold to this, you're more godly. If you do these things or if you abstain from these things, you are a holier person. And what was happening is Timothy was slipping into this thinking. Timothy was ill. He had stomach problems. He had, he had massive issues. And, and the medical practices of the day, and still even today, there are what doctors have, have, have shown the value of it, that a little wine is good for the stomach. What has happened is Timothy has given into this lie of legalism and asceticism and denying himself to look holier because this is what he's been surrounded by. And Paul's saying, don't fall into the snare that all these others are doing. Take care of yourself. Because if you don't watch it, you're going to be needing this discipline. Watch yourself. Because legalism is just as bad as all the other stuff. Guard yourself. This isn't an aside. This is a, Timothy, don't fall into this legalism. Paul is not encouraging him to go be a drunkard. Paul is not encouraging Timothy to become a drunkard. That would go against everything that he has taught, especially in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 3. As a qualification for an elder, you're not supposed to be a drunkard. For him to be a drunkard or to participate in, in much wine would disqualify Timothy from leadership. The proper perspective comes to us from ancient commentaries where wine is seen as an essential staple of everyday life. In fact, Chrysostom again wrote, He does not, however, allow him to indulge freely in wine, but as much as was for his health. And in the 16th century, John Calvin remarked, He seems to be speaking of a little wine to be guarding against intemperance. Legalism and asceticism can entrap and can, can ensnare even the most holy people. People like this wonderful godly Timothy. Timothy was a godly man. Certainly the Bible teaches temperance, but not self-righteous asceticism. There are a thousand reasons to abstain from alcohol. I mean, just to list rampant alcoholism that devours whole families. Um, 
Alcohol is hazard to health, even as declared by the Surgeon General. These are just some of his warnings. According to the Surgeon General, women should not drink alcoholic beverages during pregnancy because of the risk of birth defects. Secondly, consumption of alcoholic beverages impairs your ability to drive a car or operate machinery and may cause health problems. I think those are enough to show you that even if the world understands there's a problem here, but it goes on the social evils that occur from from when when alcohol lessens our inhibitions such as uh, sexual crimes and felonies and traffic deaths alcohols the industry the industry's exploitation that targets kind of alcohol ridden ghettos with with their advertising and make it a cool and 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 fun thing the the presence within the church of the weaker brother whose spiritual development would be hindered by an exercise of freedom all those reasons aside why abstinence is is a good thing timothy was abstaining for the wrong reason timothy was was abstaining because of asceticism and legalism which was ensnaring his soul and so Paul, in his concluding thoughts, is saying, be discerning. Paul returns to the matter of choosing elders and urges discernment. The sins of men, of some men, are conspicuous. Going before them to judgment, some men's sins are just obvious to everyone. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. The detection of sin and the detection of, of faulty character is, is easy for us with some people. I'm not looking anyone in the eye right now. <laughs> I don't want you to think I'm thinking of anyone here. I'm not. But the sins of some are off obvious, but in others it's a very subtle task. So we always have to be discerning. Prayerfully discerning. We are good at spotting gross sins, but the subtle, unseen sin may be more damning because it resides silently in the depth of the spiritual being. It's close to the heart. Therefore, we need to be careful. But Paul, as he always does, he loves to contrast things. And so he, he ends off on a, on a bit of a, po- on a positive note. Happily, good deeds here are also evident. And we ought to ready ourselves to see them as well. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and those who, that are not can't be hidden. They can't be hidden from God. God sees them. We must not be fooled by showing lively and showing by, uh, sorry, we must not be fooled by showy lives and spectacular gifts for an evil heart may lie beneath them. This is how um, Kent Hughes finishes off his chapter on, on this. He says, we must honor our leaders We must discipline our leaders. We must choose our leaders wisely. Perhaps by doing so, we will someday bless our children and our children's children. Put those steps in place now. 
and the benefits only go on. You do the hard work now, and your children's children benefit out of it. Is that not good news? It's also a strong caution to all of us. And thankfully, I am very thankful for the leadership of this church. Um, I'm thankful to be a, a part of it as well. And it's not... Leadership is, is always a scary and daunting thing because the standards that we are held to according to God's word in the church are daunting. But I love that Paul writes this. It holds us accountable. And I love our church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you for this church, Grace Bible Church, that you have given to us as a stewardship. Thank you for the, the leaders that you have placed over us here. I thank you for each of our elders, for, for Mark and for Bart and for Grant. The wisdom each and every day that they exercise over our church. We pray that you would protect them, guard their hearts and their minds, protect their families. We pray for our pastor, Steve, and we pray that you would guard him. Guard him from unfair accusations, but also guard him from his own sin in his life. Help him to be repentant when he needs to repent. And Lord, we thank you that you have given him incredible wisdom. We thank you for his family. We thank you for the integrity that he has shown day in and day out. We pray that that would continue. We don't take it for granted because all of us are sinners. And Lord, we pray that you would protect his wife, Sylvia. We pray that you would protect their children. We pray that they would feel the respect and honor that they are deserving of. We also pray for our pastor, James. We pray that you would heal him, that you would give his body strength, that you would bring him back to us quickly and in good health. We miss him dearly. And Father, we thank you for our time together where we get to be your church, where we get to gather on this, the Lord's day, to honor you, to give you, because you are the head of the church. We pray that you would protect this church. We have no guarantee except through Christ Jesus. And we pray that you would guard every one of us, that we may come this morning even right now with clean hands and a pure heart. And may your name be honored and glorified and exalted this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.